Boy, the thing they don't tell you about preaching is that it's like headlining a rock concert, but all you have to do is talk. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, who wants to hear me talk about anything after that? <laughs> um, well, thank you all for being here. My name's Matt. I'm part of the team um, here at Hill City, and I am so honored to be up here in front of you all um, to share some thoughts. Uh, on this series that we are in the middle of. It's called uh, Stories Jesus Told. So we are going through the parables in the Gospel of Luke um, and just kind of trying to unpack these really layered and yet so simple um, little folktale kind of things that, that Jesus gave us 2,000 years ago. Um, as I kind of said, if you were here last time that I spoke, I kind of always want to open up by letting you know that my personal sort of belief or take on, on what we're doing here right now is not that I'm necessarily up here to teach you anything, to like put anything in your head, but rather I'm here to hopefully draw, help draw something out of your heart, no matter where you're at today. Um, whether you're not even sure why you're sitting here, whether you're not sure if God is even real, or if you've been walking this path for a long time, um, I am honored to get your attention for a couple of minutes um, to kind of just give you my thoughts on, on what we're about to read. Um, today we are going to be in Luke 15, 11 through uh, 24, and this is what's colloquially known as the story of the prodigal son, or some translations say the story of the lost son. Now, before we read um, the scripture, I'll give you two things. A, I know that it's incredibly um, predictable that they would have the guy with the knuckle tattoos get up and give you the prodigal son um, (laughs) sermon. Uh, And, you know, in some ways that's true. Um, I am a prodigal son, uh, but so are you. I think we all are um, in some way, shape, or form, and we're going to kind of get into why that's true here in a minute. But before we do, we're going to read um, this scripture. It's long. It's, I think it's the longest one we've read. Maybe Nicole did one longer. Um, but I just want you to kind of put yourself in the headspace. If you have a Bible or if you want to read along, you can. The words will also be on the screen. But I want you to imagine, again, no matter where you're at today, no matter what you believe about who Jesus was, we have really strong evidence that he was at least a real guy that existed in history. Um, during the reign of uh, Caesar Tiberius. So imagine this teacher um, really sitting there with his, with his guys um, and with, with uh, his women friends as well. He had followers of both, um, both genders. Sitting there and just telling the story. And remember that there was no Netflix. <laughs> there was no, none of the things that we have to entertain us. This was the primary way in which people built relationships, learned things, remembered things. Um, and also entertain themselves. So let's go ahead and get into it. It says, there was a man who had two sons. Now this is Jesus speaking. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and then squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? 
and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. So, one thing I want to get across really quick to everybody is that in this story, um, it may be tempting for some of us to put ourselves in the father's place, especially if you're actually a parent, right? Um, Or maybe to put your father or your mother or your parent figure in the father's place. But I think that Jesus' intent here is to kind of say to us, you're not the father. (laughs) We're talking about God. Maybe Jesus is talking about himself, but him being God. The father in this story is God. So try to put yourself in the son's place and the father in his place up in heaven. We're going to unpack this piece by piece. And actually, the parable is a lot longer. Um, Those of you who know the story know that there's a second half to it. Nicole's going to go over that next week. um, And I'm super excited to hear what she's got to say. So we're going to start... In part one, which I'm calling the false self. I'm going to reread this really quick. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. Now, Going out is something that we all do. It's what we're designed to do. God um, designed us to do this process that psychologists call individuation. It's a process that starts when you're a little baby, the first time that you're um, nursing or being held by your caregiver, and you suddenly have this realization that you can move your own arm. It's not mom that moves your arm for you. And that you see babies like kind of, whoa, you know, they almost sort of look like they're tripping a little bit. They're like, holy cow, they stare at the lights. Because they're realizing like, oh, I'm a person. I, I do this. This is me. I have a brain and mom has a brain or a caregiver has a brain. And, and my brain and my body is separate from that. And then that goes out into, hey, I don't need you to carry me. I can walk. Hey, I don't need you to take me to the movies. I can drive myself, so on and so forth. Individuation is a good thing. It's what we're meant to do. It's what God designed us to do. The problem is... Like with so much um, of this, like this thing that we call sin, this sort of misalignment with our experience and the sort of more cosmic realities of, um, of life, um, we take that thing, which is good, and we overextend it. So we individuate from mom and dad or caregivers, but then at some point, we, individ- we try to individuate from God, from reality, from this um, larger idea of sort of what it is to be a human being. Um, And all of us have done this. Um, 
To individuate from parents is simply having a self. That's not a bad thing. God designed you to do that. But when you take that and try to apply it to like the bigger universe and say, hey, I've got it. I don't care whether it's for a day or for a decade. At some point, we've looked at God and said, it's cool. I've got it. I got it figured out. Thanks. Um, So the problem here is not in having a self. We all do. You have to do that. It's in trying to live only for yourself. It's in living um, in a way that you think you don't need anyone else. You don't need um, anything else but your own sort of like bootstraps or your own sort of um, knowledge of how the world works. Now, some of you might be thinking if you're like me, um, yeah, but that's like literally what we're told to do. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're an island unto yourself. You know, we, especially sort of in our country, we, we descend from cowboys, right? Like we want to go out into the wilderness and put down stakes and have my land and my things and be self-sufficient. And again, some of that's not bad. But when we're taught it as gospel, we sometimes take it as gospel and start to map it over what's real, which is that God is our father, whether we think we need him or not. You see, this idea of individuating from God like we do from our parents is ridiculous. The Father, God, is in and through all things. Trying to live away from him isn't making a choice. It's creating an illusion. It's creating, thinking like I can live away from the Father, I can live away from God, um, is creating a false sense of yourself. Um, It's this idea that there's sort of a big you and then there's this little you and you're letting the little you drive the boat all of a sudden. One of the points I kind of really want to get across here, and there's going to be several, I kind (laughs) of, I joked to somebody earlier, I don't know how this sermon's going to go. Either it's going to be great or it's going to be like sort of wordle. Like I'm just going to say things and hopefully green squares will pop up at some point for you guys. One of the things I really want to get across is this idea that, like, if you're, wherever you're at um, in your walk, uh, God, this idea of God, again, no matter what your theology is, what your particulars are about it, this idea of God is the idea of a reality. Um, If on the count of three, and I truly believe this, if on the count of three, God no longer loved you, then on the count of three, you simply wouldn't exist. You'd never know that he had withdrawn his love from you because you just... Poof. All of reality is God's unfolding expression of his, her, their self. And so this idea of leaving the farm is kind of a joke. It's not real. You're here in the reality that God made for you. And if you think that you're going to do it on your own, you're really kind of just kidding yourself. The chief thing, this is from Thomas Merton, the chief thing that separates us from God is the thought that we're separated from him. This is a quote that has meant a lot to me in the last couple of years. The thought that we're separated from God might be the very thing that separates us from him. And again, I wanna drive home to folks that maybe you don't have a good relationship with your earthly father, so your idea of a heavenly father is like, well, I I don't need another dad, dads are not good. Maybe your relationship with the church is one full of hurt and um, betrayal and questions that were never answered. Well, that's the church. That's not the wider reality of God the Father who's breathing you into existence as you're sitting here in your chair. So 
okay, this is all like big and cosmic, so what? <laughs> That's gonna be a theme whenever you see me talk is me asking, yeah, okay, so what? Well, when you decide that your false self or that this illusion that you've created by trying to separate yourself or individuate from the reality of God, when you decide that is real, that your false self is what's driving, that this is the thing, you're building an illusion that is really easy to wash away. So when we engage in false self-living, when we believe the illusion that we can ever live independently from our creator, we build an imaginary life that can be completely toppled by things outside of our control. When the famine came, he lost everything. The prodigal son may have thought he was doing great. I mean, wild living, <laughs> we need to understand, in the Jewish context of, of the first century, he could have gone and eaten some shrimp. Like, we don't know that, I've heard this sermon preached and it's like, oh, he was out drinking and whoring and blah, blah. There's actually no evidence of that in the, uh, in the scripture. The word that they use is actually the Greek word for riotous living, which does have energy to the context, but it's only used once in the whole Bible. So yeah, it could mean he was like sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but it could have just meant he like held hands with a Gentile and ate some shellfish. Like, we don't know. The point is not the level of depravity. The point is that he was selfish and unwise. The point is that he thought, I can do it. I'm going to separate myself from the Father. And when he did that, all it took was a famine, and he was done. How many of us have ever been in that situation? I'm all right. There's some money in the bank. We're doing fine. One flat tire is all it took, and the dominoes started to fall. I've been in that situation so many times. I'm terrible with money, guys. Um, <laughs> you know, but let's go bigger. What has COVID shown us? Didn't take that much for everything to fall down. The, the racial unrest, the social unrest. Think of all the things that happened that had nothing to do with, with coughing and being sick. That's all it took because we are a world, a broken world. I'm not going to pick on the West too much. No, I'm not going to say our society. The whole, the whole world kind of toppled a little bit, didn't it? We're a world, a broken, sinful world that's built on a bunch of false selves getting together and creating this giant illusion that everything's going to be okay. That we've got it. Thanks, God. And all it took was our, our version of a famine, which was COVID. And there it went. So the question is kind of, you got to stand for something because when one day there will be a wave, the wave will come through and a lot of people will fall. And if you're left standing, then you're going to have to ask, what do you stand for? So what? You made it. Now what? And that's what I think the prodigal son is trying to figure out. So here's part two, hitting bottom. I'm going to use some um, language here that might be familiar to some of you. I um, grew up in a home um, where recovery was part of our family. Uh, my older brother struggled um, with substance abuse. And, and so if you know somebody or you're close to somebody or you yourself have ever been through recovery, you know that it's not just you that goes through it. It's kind of like the, those closest to you are also involved. So hitting bottom is like this idea that I, I learned from that. It says, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. So he went out, he was living wildly, maybe he was partying super hard, maybe he was eating pork. Um, and then all it took was a famine to come, and now he's crashed and burned. And he hired himself out to a citizen of the country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. 
He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Again, in the context of this story, there's literally nothing worse for a good Jewish boy than to have to feed someone else's pigs. This is an unclean animal to, to the folks um, who are hearing this story. Um, so this is the worst of the worst of the worst for him. So you'd think the reaction here for him, for the son, after he lost all his money and the famine came, would be like, well, the jig's up, time to head home. <clears throat> I'm a millennial, so I know a lot about like boomerang uh, children, you know. I managed to stay out, I never moved back home, maybe for a week or so. But uh, this idea that like millennials were really good at this. Oh, jig's up, I'm gonna head home. <laughs> but he didn't. Instead, he went and lowered himself, again, socially for him, to the lowest place he could. Um, we can assume that this was like a work for, uh, it was kind of like indentured servitude, because apparently they weren't even giving him anything to eat. Maybe they gave him somewhere to sleep. But this idea of working for this person in the pig pen didn't seem like it was benefiting him very much. See, our... Um, our false self often creates this imaginary world held up by rules that we needlessly enforce for ourselves. You may have thought to yourself before, well, there's no turning back now. Why? Why is there no turning back? I got myself into this mess, I can get myself out. Really? Maybe. But why? Why not ask for help? It's these imaginary rules that we make up in our head to hold up this imaginary world that we have constructed for ourselves. We'd rather be dead than be wrong. And don't we see that in our society right now? So it says that no one gave him anything. He got to the bottom, the famine came, and there was no one there to help. It's because false living, the false self's addiction to independence, always leads to isolation. Um, when you live for yourself, you are naturally attracted to other people who are doing the same thing. And that could be okay for a while. I used to um, do security. I was like the door guy at Sticky Rice, which is like a bar here in town. Um, and some of you were like, ooh, ooh. Um, <laughs> you're right. Uh, and watching, you know, watching that sort of culture, I never drank, so I never, I kind of was always a little bit like on the outside looking in. Watching that culture, and this isn't a judgment, I just noticed like, man, these people are laughing a lot and having a really good time. But if you go to the hospital, who's gonna come sit with you? Is it gonna be one of your buddies that, that like bartends with you? Maybe, I hope. But when, what I observed there was like everyone sort of living for themselves, and I did get wrapped up into it, and that's a story for another time. But um, when everyone's living for themselves, sometimes that works as you're sort of in tandem, like you're doing this and I'm doing that and this is fun. But then when the famine comes, you turn around and you realize like, oh, I don't have anyone here to help me. No one gave me anything. You know, some of the wisest and luckiest people that I know had substance abuse problems or struggle now with substance abuse problems. People who've been through AA, people who've been through NA, people who've been through rehab, um, people in my family, close friends of mine. Because for those folks, they know where their bottom was. They hit, they, said, they talk about, I hit bottom. But what becomes a danger for some of us, if you've never hit that bottom where you just, it was apparent to you and to everyone observing you 
uh, yeah, you can't do this anymore. This isn't going to work. You're either going to die or you're going to get better. It, maybe you've never been in that scenario. You're kind of in a dangerous, a more dangerous scenario because not everybody's pig pen looks the same. <clears throat> I'm calling this the comfy pig pen. <laughs> um, a lot of us sort of find ourselves, or more dangerously don't find ourselves, don't realize that we're kind of living at our bottom, but it's a comfy pig pen. Uh, Justin Early, who spoke a couple of weeks ago, is a guy who pretty much, by the world standards, has it all together. He's a successful lawyer, he's got beautiful kids and, and a wonderful marriage, and he's a great preacher. But he, the most affecting thing about what he got up here and told you guys was that like, it wasn't working. He couldn't sleep. And then he ended up drinking to sleep. And then he ended up taking drugs to sleep. It was the comfy pig pen. You know, Jesus doesn't say, to go back a little bit to my thing about folks that I know who struggled with addiction, poverty, oppression, like these, these big sort of obvious bottoms, you know, the rock bottoms. Um, why they're lucky um, is because, you know, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the well-off. Or blessed are those who are eh, doing just fine, right? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they who mourn. Blessed are the meek. So if you're not one of those people, and I've kind of been on both sides, and we'll get into that in a minute, um, you may be sitting here being like, oh, well, Matt, like, what if I'm in the comfy pig pen? I don't know. I mean, like, I sometimes can't sleep at night. Or like, well, you know, things aren't perfect, and I'm not the perfect parent. I'm not the perfect friend. It's not about being perfect, but the way that you can kind of wake up to the idea of being in the comfy pig pen, of maybe being at your bottom and not realizing it, is this concept of self-clarity. I'm not going to get super into it because it's like 10 other, other messages, but this is why if you've been around Hill City for any amount of time, we're very into stuff like the Enneagram and emotional health. And it's not because this stuff is like magical or, or whatever. Uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not a one-stop shop to make yourself better. Only Jesus can do that. But we do realize that self-clarity, this idea of understanding yourself, loving yourself so that you can love your neighbor, not just for the sake of loving yourself, and understanding yourself is a way to sort of wake up to the idea that like, maybe I am sort of spiritually in the same place that somebody who is experiencing homelessness, um, psychiatric break, addiction, I, I might be in the exact same place and not just not realize it because the pig pen feels a little comfy. So that, that moves us to our next point about getting out of the pig pen. And this is what I'm saying is part three, a moment of clarity. It says, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. The first line, when he came to himself, I told Nicole Eunice, uh, she was kind of helping me with the sermon. I was like, can I just preach on just that one line? I could talk for hours. If you ever want to talk to me for hours, <laughs> let's, make, let's have coffee and I'll talk to you about when he came to himself. This is a moment when you come to yourself, your real self, when you come to your true self, when your false self falters. Um, this is a moment in which the illusion you're, you, that you've built up seems to falter. You get a peek at things for what they are rather than what you think them to be. 
You get a peek at things for what they really are rather than how you feel about them. You get a peek at things of how they really are beyond what you've done or what's been done to you, your decisions, your mistakes, your success. You get a peek at how things really are. It's like that moment in like, I don't know if you've ever seen like the Matrix movies. There's a, always a moment where like something goes wrong and they realize they're in the simulation. Or um, it's sort of a trope in like fantasy where the wizard or, or whoever the bad guy is kind of has everyone in this illusion and then something like stutters and they realize, oh wait, I'm living in an illusion. That's the moment of clarity. For some of us, it's as simple as this phrase. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Have you ever felt that? You ever just wake up and just think, I am sick of feeling this way. That can be a moment of clarity. And for those of us who have felt that, it's kind of the, I don't want to say it's the easier path, it's actually the harder path, but it is the simpler path. There's less to unpack there. You're just tired of living the way that you live. Um, I think of a, a really dear friend of mine who tells a story about waking up on a bench after a bender and not remembering a certain amount of time before that, and he wakes up on a park bench, and he just thinks, I'm done. <laughs> I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. I've had moments like this in my life, and guess what? It's not just one moment. A moment of clarity is not your only moment. It's one, it can be one of many moments. When I was 19 years old, um, trying to attempt suicide at a stranger's house. You'd think that would have been it. <laughs> it was a moment of clarity. It put me on the path that led me here. But then there was the moment of clarity I had in a prison cell when I thought, hmm, I don't want to be here. How did I get here? I'm sick and tired of this. I've also been on the other end of it, though. One of the worst and best moments of clarity in my life, the most depressed I've ever been, the most mentally unwell I've ever been, was why I was creative director at this church. I was surrounded by healthy people who loved me. I had a great therapist. I had everything that I thought that I would need. I had just gotten back from a um, trip to, to Israel with my friends and my wife. That went, that went great. It was the best. It was the hugest blessing. And I woke up one morning and just realized I can't get out of bed. I was so dissociated, I couldn't move. I literally had to have a friend come and get me, drag me out of bed, and prop me up in a chair and snap me out of it. And I had a moment of clarity. But it was the comfy pig pen. I thought, I have everything I need. I work at a church. Everybody loves me. I have friends that I can trust. But I wasn't, I wasn't doing the work. I wasn't doing the work to realize that I was actually quite at my bottom and wasn't paying attention. So if your pig pen is comfy, you gotta stay vigilant. You gotta stay vigilant for a moment in which you come to yourself. It may be what some of you have heard, if you grew up in church, have you ever, I'll try to get nods, so I won't make you raise your hand. Anybody ever heard that phrase, a still small voice? Yeah. yeah. Even not out of church, right? Jiminy Cricket was like a still small voice, right? <laughs> a still small voice. It comes from this scripture, from 1 Kings. This is Elijah. Um, and God says, hey, you're going to encounter me. And so he goes out to the mountain. And it says, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. 
And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after that fire, a still, small voice. See, for me, it wasn't in the attempted suicide. It wasn't in my day in prison and then my trial afterwards. Those things got me going, put me on the right path. It was in the comfy pig pen that I found that still small voice. I wanted to share this with you. It's a little nerdy, but I was reading a a translation of this from um, a French, he's actually a Jewish theologian, so not a Christian, um, a French lawyer who also, I guess, holidayed by translating the Bible. Um, And the way that he translated a still small voice is the sound of a vanishing silence. Wow. (laughs) End End of message. The sound of a vanishing silence. I just thought that was cool. Um, Here's a truth about that moment of clarity. Whether you hit bottom and it looks like how bottom looks on a movie or an after-school special, if you wake up um, in a jail cell or strung out or whatever, if it's that kind of bottom, or if it's the comfy pig pen and you just realize like, oh dang, I'm at my bottom. Regardless of either of those, here's something that I believe to be true. Moments of clarity are between you and the spirit. Whatever you understand that to be right now, it's between you and this thing that is calling you home. No one can do it for you, and you cannot do it for anyone else. There may be people in your life that you're like, dang, I really wish that they would have a moment of clarity. Maybe Christian-y languages, I need to hold them accountable. Did they ask you to hold them accountable? You can't do it for anyone else. There's this, uh, if you guys ever saw Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? There's this great song called The Lonesome Valley. No one can do it for you. You got to go by yourself. That is, as far as my experience can, can merit, a truth about your moment of clarity. Now, after you've had your moment of clarity, after our prodigal son had his moment of clarity, he had this moment where he had to make a decision. He had to decide, I'm gonna go home, I'm gonna apologize, I'm gonna throw myself at the feet of my dad and maybe he'll make me one of his servants. Some translations say slave. Maybe he'll let me sweep the floors. Anything's better than the pig pen. Once you've had that moment of clarity, there's another question that you have to ask and I'm gonna kinda set that question up real quick um, by being, I'm gonna set it up by being an insufferable nerd Um, and quoting something from John Milton, which uh, Paradise Lost is a poem so long that I don't know that anyone should read it. It's like 12 volumes. Um, It's essentially about Satan's fall from heaven. It's a fictional work. Now, (laughs) a lot of our ideas of hell and Satan actually come from Paradise Lost more than they come from the Bible, Um, especially if you were raised in in the church in the West. So keep in mind that it's a work of poem, a work of fiction, but is also beautiful um, and can be a very revealing sort of work. Well, there's a scene in it. So um, Satan's cast down from heaven and he wakes up on the lake of fire and his minions are there with him. Again, it's all very dramatic. And they're kind of like, well, we followed you in this rebellion. Now, what are we gonna do? This is awful. This is a lake of fire. And what he says to him is, It's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. At some point we have to ask ourselves, would I rather reign in hell than serve in heaven after that moment of clarity? That's the question. 
Now you have to remember though that hell is not like this cool like heavy metal place where you have like an army and stuff. Hell is like more like the pig pen. I think that's what Jesus is trying to say. Um, you don't get like a sweet, you know, Byzantine painting around you. You actually, it just sucks. Um, Another way to kind of put this question after you've had your moment of clarity is, is it better to serve in heaven or reign in hell? Another way that I kind of put it is, is it better to serve reality or be king of nothing, of an illusion? Would you rather be uh, the head CEO of a giant company in the matrix? Or would you rather at least be able to deal with the reality of, if you guys ever saw that movie, like reality is kind of gross. You like wake up in the pod and you have to go and you're like in rags. It's very strange. Um, would you rather, would I rather reign in hell than serve in heaven? And that brings us to our final part, part four, which is what I'm calling come home. So, so he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. <clears throat> the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So there's a guy that we have started to really like around here called Rich Viotis. He wrote a book called The Deeply Formed Life that some of you are reading in discipleship. He's, he's a good teacher. I like him. I talked to him on the phone and I was very taken with sort of his attitude. Um, he said this, in the Gospel of Luke, the prodigal son doesn't return home because of a renewed love for his father. He comes home because he simp simply to survive because he ran out of money and is starving. And his father is perfectly fine with that. Just come home. God just wants you home. Another joke I made was like, can I just put this on the screen, light a candle and turn all the lights off? We can just, <laughs> just ruminate on that for a while. Um, something you need to understand about this scene to the people that were hearing it 2,000 years ago is that, first off, the father is probably fairly old. Secondly, based on the wealth that he's distributing to the sons, he's probably a person of some like renown, like some dignity. For him, and also he's wearing a robe, for him to hike up his robe and run to this boy was what we would call extra or like sort of embarrassing. Like he is tripping over himself. He's embarrassing himself just to get to this boy. What would your view of God, especially if you're someone who's maybe been hurt by the church, hurt by someone else's idea of God, hurt by something that's said or something that you saw um, that was done in the name of Jesus? What would it what would it, how would it change your relationship to this concept of the large reality of God? To think of him not as an angry you know, tyrant, not as a maybe kind but judgmental deity. What would it do for you to think of him as this God who is willing to embarrass himself to come be with you? 
because that's what he did. I mean, if you believe in Jesus, that's what he did. He was born poor, he was raised as a tradesman, and he suffered a shameful, shameful end just to say, I love you. Just to say, it's fine. I don't, does he ask him any questions in the scene about where the heck he's been or what the heck he's been doing? No. Does he say, where's my money? I get, where's the money I gave you? No. As a matter of fact, um, he ignores his apology. <laughs> he has this, uh, this like prepared statement that he says, and the father's just like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, bring the, the calf, we're going to celebrate. You see, oops. You see, I think that even if you are attempting to come home, God will run to meet you. If you're sitting here listening to me and you're just like, yeah, preacher, whatever. I've heard this before, but then I got hurt. If you're thinking like, yeah, run home, that means come to church and give money. I don't, you don't, you don't ever have to walk into this room again. All I want is for you to turn and start to find your way home. That's all I want. Because if you do that, if you even start to ask the right questions, if you even, with no answers, start to wonder in the direction of this big reality that we call God, the God that I believe in will embarrass himself, will trip over himself, will hike up his skirts like a fool and run towards you and embrace you. And you know what else he'll do? He'll ignore your shame. You'll have a prepared statement, maybe. It's kind of like religion, right? Like a little liturgy, a little like something to say, something to do to like atone. God has no use for your shame. But he's also smart enough to know that shaming you for your shame will make you more ashamed. So he doesn't rebuke the son. He doesn't say like, no, 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 save it. You know, you ever do that? Like, oh no, I got it. I got the bill. No, 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 no. He doesn't do that. He just kind of ignores it and starts the celebration because the son has come home. So why doesn't, and Nicole's gonna get into this with the older brother next week. Um, so I just told you, I don't care if you come back, but now I'm like, to be continued, come back. <laughs> um, I love you, I wanna see you, I care if you come back. <laughs> don't tell John I told you to leave. Um, so you might be wondering though, for those of you who maybe have walked a straighter path, who maybe have done it right, or maybe who have crashed and burned and come back, you're like, yeah, but isn't there, isn't there punishment? Isn't there accountability? Maybe. But here's what I think Jesus is telling us in this moment. In this moment, here's what he wants the people in front of him to hear. And here's what I think he wants you to hear in this moment. Though God is an infinite mystery, and so there's room for other conversations. I think what the father understands in this moment as he ignores the son's apology is that maybe the father understands that we are punished by our sins more than we are punished for our sins. He doesn't need to issue a punishment, a lashing, whatever they did back then. He looks at that boy and he's like, you hit bottom, didn't you? <laughs> you time served. That's the grace of the Lord. Look, If you walk away from this with anything, if, if I've clicked those green boxes and, and one word all with you today, I want you to think about this. The good news is that God just wants you to come home. I don't know what that looks like. 
Um, for me, it was kind of dramatic sometimes. <laughs> um, for you, it might not be. It might not look like going to this church. It might not look like going to your old church. It might look like a community group or it might look like discipleship. It might look like just getting together with a couple of folks and being real with them, starting there. But God wants you to come home. He doesn't want you to live in this illusion that you've built, that you may have built for yourself, that your ego is constantly grinding out. Think of this. Why are you here? Why did God create us? He created us to dwell with us. He created us to dwell within us. So if God created us simply for him to dwell in, maybe you are heaven to God. Have you ever considered that? Does your shame have a role in that? Maybe you are where God wants to be. Maybe his reward for being him is being with you. So usually we do two minutes to talk, or two minutes to think at the end, just a question, a couple of questions to kind of ruminate on and, and sit quietly. I, today I'm going to kind of break the rules, shocker, and uh, I'm going to just give you one question. Are you willing to accept that the good news really is that good? Let's take a couple of minutes and I'll close us in prayer. we just acknowledge that you are good. Um, and Lord, for those of us in the room or listening at home that just can't say that with confidence yet, Lord, I pray that they would put their feet on the path and just start to ask questions, just to start that journey home. Lord, that even if your name, um, maybe because of experiences they've had or people that they've known, um, feels strange in their mouth, Lord, if the name of Jesus feels like a negative rather than a positive, Lord, that that word, home, would resonate for them and that they would want to return there. Lord, have mercy on us. Give us moments of clarity where we can see past how we feel and what we think, our opinions and our failures and our successes, the things that we've done and the things that have been done to us, that the veil could part for just a moment and we could see you, and that moving forward we would not betray our awakened hearts, and that we would continue to seek that which we that which we previewed in that moment. Lord, we pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.